Chapter 12 Otto's room was on the fourth floor. It was one minute to midnight when he stepped out of the lift. As he hurried down the corridor, he could see his door was partly open. There was a light on in the room. He ruffled his hair so it didn't appear so wet. To cool himself, he squirmed out of his overcoat. He inhaled deeply. When he pushed at the open door, he saw Marie sitting at the desk with her legs crossed. The narrow entrance was flanked by a bathroom on the right and cupboards to the left. Otto saw Marie's phone on the desk, next to her fur hat. He saw her handbag on the floor. She draped her coat over the back of the chair. His suitcases were in the corner where he'd left them. In those slowing moments, as he blundered into his room, it seemed that Marie had been waiting for some time and that she was becoming impatient. Her arms were folded. She'd begun to unfold them. Time had almost caught up, but, but it, it wasn't, wasn't yet, yet relentless. There was a new tension in the treacliness, something Otto only barely registered as nausea. Marie's gaze had shot up too quickly. The instant she saw him, instead of unfolding her arms, she kept them folded. Although her expression remained impassive, there was nothing in her wide eyes to suggest that Otto's arrival was welcome. By the time time had caught up, he'd taken three long strides, leaving the door open behind him. A smile had constructed itself on his face, but was already overshadowed by crumpling eyebrows. Screwing his eyebrows down was Otto's involuntary response to seeing a man on the floor. The man was on all fours with his back to Otto, kneeling below the television. He said, ah, I think I've done it. He hadn't heard Otto come in, but he must have felt a new presence. The room was small, which meant that the arrival of a third party was easily detected by means other than auditory confirmations. To make sure, the man glanced over his shoulder. Who are you? Otto asked. Ah, said the man. It was apparent he'd opened Otto's safe and had only just seen that there were tens of thousands of euros inside. Scrambling to his feet, brushing himself down, the man tried to calculate how he might extract himself from any unpleasantness. It occurred to him that to lie about his name would be futile. Faninali, Alois, he said, at your service. He pointed to the nameplate on his jacket, all smiles and other placatory gestures. What are you doing in my room? Otto asked. As much to demonstrate that he was a member of staff as to reassure the gentleman that he was there in an official capacity, Faninali Alois straightened his waistcoat. He grimaced before indicating towards Marie. Your wife, he said. He didn't know what to say next. Otto looked pointedly at the safe before looking back. The concierge perfectly understood the downward glance and was nodding now. Yes, indeed, he agreed, gesturing towards Marie again, who by now was relaxing back into her chair and recrossing her legs. Frau Loser here, he said. 
What about her? Otto said. At this, Faninali was visibly relieved. He'd begun to wonder if Frau Loza was really who she'd said she was. Seeing so much money in the safe had put a sinister complexion on things. The whole account he was about to provide the gentleman with felt improbable, but he blurted it out anyway, because he couldn't think of any believable lie to replace the truth with. Your good wife was, um, was anxious to recover your passport so that she could, uh, report your absence to the police. He glared at Marie encouragingly in case she might like to add something. But Marie sat quietly, straightening her skirt as if she was alone. Fanny Nally struggled on. I was, you see, given to understand that your documents might be in the safe. <laughs> but uh, you'd secured it before you left the hotel, very wisely, if I may say so. There was an uncomfortable moment while Otto digested this. Thank you, he said. I don't believe there will be any further need of your services. It's been a pleasure, Faninelli said, and I'm delighted you made it back without any mishap. He was edging around Otto as he spoke, already formulating with his quick wit the wild speculations he would be making with his colleagues as soon as he was safely back among them. May I take this opportunity to wish you and, um, your wife a gratifying stay with us. The concierge crooned on tiptoes now as he left, shutting the door behind him with a barely audible click. Otto's legs weakened. He sat on the bed. The weakness in his legs spread through his torso until there was nothing for it but to rest his elbows on his knees and sink his head into his hands. He was still panting. His thumping heart said it all. Once again he found himself staring at his faithful shoes. He wondered where they might take him next. As if it was actually thinking of leaving, the left shoe began to tap rhythmically. It was after midnight. At least one thing was sure now. Otto would no longer have to suffer the oppression of knowing his future. He should have felt elated, but a new feeling commanded him, and no single voice in his head was prepared to explain it. Seeing his shoe tapping to the beat of his heart was a clue. It was an expression of the anxiety of not knowing what was going to happen next. He still had his head in his hands, but on the periphery of his vision he could sense Marie moving. He interpreted the movement as reaching into her handbag. He heard a match flare up. With a shudder, it was the pocked face of Vinctus Promontano that he saw. A salty, sulfuric stench permeated the air. As a boy, Otto had always associated the smell of cigarettes with a warm, comforting feeling. Both his parents had smoked. The idea that he should have memories of being young saddened him. Because his origins were so enmeshed with the writing of a novel, he could no longer trust his memories. He could only latch on to a present that seemed steeped in treachery. 
Smoking had given Marie a measure of distance and poise. In the game of upper hand developing between them, it was as if by smoking she'd signaled her intention to wait for Otto to make the next move. He clung to his silence as firmly as he clung to his head with his hands. Silence was a tactic that had worked with Jacob, but it might not work now. Otto didn't know if he could withstand what was happening inside this new silence. An accurate likeness of Marie's betrayal formed in his thoughts. Shadows and contours and colors all came together to depict Otto in his hotel room with Marie not long after midnight on the 19th of February, 2019. It became a terrible likeness, a detailed illustration of her attempt to steal the money from the safe, knowing that Jacob was supposed to have prevented Otto from returning to his hotel. She may have guessed what he was thinking, but Marie couldn't have known the dislocated nature of Otto's thoughts. His left shoe was tapping uncontrollably. It was walking him all the way back to his shabby flat in England, to the seconds heralding his first few breaths as a real person, and the feeling that he'd never left the nightmare he was born in. Aren't you going to say something? Marie asked. It was all the confirmation Otto needed. Silence has more to say than words. He shook his head. It felt uncomfortable not knowing if his head was shaking in his hands or if his hands were shaking his head. He sat up, too straight and too quickly. Their eyes met. The interlinking of Otto's regard with Marie's reinforced everything that had been left unsaid. It was as if what couldn't be said was always going to be more alluring than what could. With the full range of possibilities still open to them, they stared at one another, dumbfounded. Until Marie's phone finally began to buzz. She glanced at the screen, but looked away. She didn't resume the eye contact they'd established. While the phone continued to buzz, she took a long, theatrical drag on her cigarette. Aren't you going to answer it? Otto asked. Marie didn't answer it, nor did she answer his question. Throwing the same silence at him that he'd thrown at her, she blew a thin line of smoke through the air. The phone stopped buzzing. The silence of the phone was the most poignant one yet. It felt as if it might be a cue for them to begin their negotiations. Looking down at his tapping left shoe, Otto wondered if he might make his right shoe tap as well. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't do it. It seemed the right shoe didn't want to have anything to do with the left one. In the short interval before they finally began to talk, Otto wanted nothing more than to be removed from the structures of reality, placing them both so squarely on a map of everything. What irritated him, to the point of distraction, was that everything about the situation they were in was being assumed by the set of coordinates they'd become. So what happened to Izzy? he finally asked. 
The effect of this question on Marie was every bit as powerful as it had been on Jacob. But while it had made Jacob furious, Marie responded with an anguished sigh. She closed her eyes. Although it was apparent that she would suffer under the weight of any further mention of their daughter, Otto goaded her. Jacob told me she has a drug problem, he said. Holding her cigarette vertically between her thumb and her forefinger, Marie took to watching the smoke meander from the tip. Otto imagined she was thinking about death and how the seconds that passed contributed one by one to the decay of everything real. Finally, she licked her lips and said, There's nothing I can do. To stop herself saying anything else, she put the cigarette back in her mouth. It had come as no surprise to Marie that Jacob and Otto had met. She must have known all along, he realized with greater clarity. His disappointment spread like a stain. He tried to reason with himself. The outward expression of his reasoning was to place his right foot over his left foot to stop it tapping. He told himself that whatever was going on, he'd known from the outset that his family would be in the throes of an ordeal. His whole purpose in life, he reasoned, from the moment he'd woken up, was to come back to Vienna to protect them. Slowly, he removed his right foot from the left one. The left foot twitched, but it didn't tap anymore. This made Otto feel in control. You only had to ask, he said. I would have given you the money. Marie's response surprised him. She took her cigarette out of her mouth, then contorted her upper lip and jolted her head back so she could stare at the ceiling. The combination was a message, but the message, as was often the case with Marie, was disconcerting. Either she was saying she hadn't been involved in any kind of plot to steal Otto's money, or she was trying to introduce a new and more deathly layer of subterfuge into their relationship. Without another word, she got to her feet. She put her cigarette back in her mouth, grabbed her phone and hat, and slung her handbag over her shoulder. Each of these gestures was overstated. I waited three hours, she said, through the cloud around her face. You disappeared. I didn't know where you'd gone. You're the one who disappears. The word disappears set her on her path. She swept her coat off the chair and marched to the door. Otto jumped up from the bed and stood in her way. Defiant, daring him to touch her, Marie swiped her cigarette from her mouth and turned her lips downwards. They locked eyes. Otto didn't want to touch her, so he took a step back. There were words in his head which had to be spoken, but there was no obvious way of bringing them into a sentence. Destiny, money, money. The words destiny and money hovered in the space where the sentence should have been. But the meaning in his mind soon dispersed. He sensed it happening, but he couldn't articulate this either. He might have said something about what is seen not being what is visible, but he rejected what came to him automatically because he wanted to use his own form of words. 
on a larger scale, rather than be subject to any of the scenarios devised for him, Otto needed to feel free of all restraints. Each situation he encountered was nothing but the legacies of the prophecies he'd made, even though he knew he hadn't made them. His prophecies were nothing to do with him. Had Otto been able to make his own prophecies, they would have been far better honed for accuracy. He wouldn't just have predicted that there would be a rift between Izzy and Jacob. He would have established what exactly their rift would be about. Likewise, Marie's financial crisis wouldn't simply be a fact dangling in front of his nose for 20 years. Otto would have particularized the prophecy so that he understood with clarity why it was that his wife should be in so much debt in the first place. I found the money, he said. It's not mine. I don't know where it came from. It doesn't matter where it came from. I want you to have it. Marie moved to one side. She was still making as if to leave, but seemed hesitant. Her frown indicated that she believed there was something unsavory about what Otto was suggesting. But he insisted. Please, he said, moving to block her, trying to smile as a way of countering her frown. Take it. I need you to take it. It was all about the money now. Whatever was between Otto and Marie, it was the money that expressed it. The money was the set of coordinates they had become. Leaving Marie standing, Otto went to the safe and kneeled down where minutes before Alois Faninali had been kneeling. With a few quick scoops, he took the 30,000 euros out of the safe and swiveled around, offering it up for Marie to take. I can't, she said. It would be wrong. But Otto was on his knees, holding the bundles of notes in the air towards her with both hands. Pulling on strings. I still imagined that I might be able to bend events according to my will. As the author of a book about being an automaton, you might have thought I was fooling myself. All I can say is this. Even the automaton, when endowed with a small fortune, can't help thinking it's invincible. Meanwhile, Anton, who really was invincible, was feeling frayed. Trapped as the plaything of debauched tyrants, it seemed he was drowning in the Rubicon Midas and Silenus were so intent on crossing. There was some respite. While the royal portrait was underway, the chaos abated. During those sultry days, Anton whiled away the hours curled over the king's lap, Having his fur stroked by the sovereign's hand was rarely dull. Servants fanned the vaulted rooms. The goblets of the king and Silenus were continually replenished by ladies of the court. Whenever Baron von Argos raised his weary head, he was fed with tasty mead-soaked morsels, which made him drowsy. Although the dog had no difficulty in sustaining these hardships, Silenus could hardly stay on his feet, and the atmosphere soon turned poisonous. Trickles of sweat gathered over the royal brow, spilling down his cheeks. It put Midas in a temper. 
For the sake of the portrait, he'd squeezed himself into his best leather doublet, elegantly stitched in golden braid and buttoned to the chin. In accordance with his rank, the monarch wore a robe made of the hides of mountain bears. This was set off against a casually tilted, fetching black cap made of lamb's wool. To have been depicted wearing anything else but these finer accoutrements, the king felt, would have sent the wrong message to future generations intent on marveling at him. As things got worse, he sent for more servants to whip the servants who weren't fanning him hard enough, because that is what a god would have done. Silenus amused himself by making rude remarks about the artist called Matutino. The artist was from Venice and spoke no Gordian. He was a young and easy target. For many reasons, not least this one, Anton had begun to dislike Silenus. It was against his nature to be unappreciative of humans, but everything Silenus did grated on the dog. As his main rival for the king's affections, he would occasionally growl at the swaying inebriate. To begin with, the growling was accepted in good humor. More latterly, though, it drew cuffs around the ears, then some nasty pinches, then outright tail-pulling as the drunks became bored and sadistic. Before Matutino could put the finishing touches to his masterpiece, Silenus began to complain of gout. He couldn't bear another day drinking in a standing position while the miserable Venetian seemed to do nothing but idle behind his canvas. Midas, who was equally fed up by now, seized the opportunity to propose repairing to the cool of the forest so that he and Silenus might recuperate from the stresses of official engagements. Once Silenus had mentioned his good friend Dionysus, who lived in the forest and was renowned for his wines, the matter was settled. To the despair of Matutino, who was only hours from capturing to perfection a mirrored image of himself painting two swaying men and a disgruntled dog, the royal party disappeared blearily into the forest, leaving Anton behind and the rest of Gordian in peace. A silence descended over the kingdom. For a time, it seemed as if the king's subjects had awoken from a nightmare. But the royal absence would only be brief, which meant that the terror was far from over. While his master was away, Anton skulked. He'd lost his appetite. He was less keen to bark at passers-by. Nobody knew how heartbroken he was. Not because Midas hadn't taken him for a walk, which was a cruel thing to do when a good airing in the woods might have alleviated tensions. Rather, it was because all the while he'd been sitting for the royal portrait, Anton had been quaffing the warm, oily odors of Matutino's pigments as they dried on the canvas. The dog's sensibilities were so heightened by this that the writer inside had stirred. Those maddening smells had somehow put Anton in mind of riding a horse in the wilderness. The idea of a dog riding a horse produced in him all the symptoms of a nervous depression. Increasingly, he felt the need to be away from prying eyes in the more remote corners of the mighty edifice on the mountain from which Gordian was ruled. In this downward spiral, engendered by the smell of paint, 
Anton was being more obviously operated by the arbitrary happenstance of events. It had been some time since his experiences could be described as a controlled process, whereby the delights of meaning might be achieved. Even as a dog, Anton pined for meaning. Yet as soon as he thought he might have it, it vanished. Now he spent his days on his own, prowling the fortress in dark meditations. He pictured Dionysius as Friedrich Nietzsche. Gloomily, he imagined the itinerant 19th century philosopher indulging Midas and Silenus somewhere in the forest. Beneath the extravagant moustaches of that god, Midas was to discover an immortal who knew just how difficult it is to be the fount of all knowledge. And because Anton imagined it, it all came true. Out in nature, Midas and Silenus had been teasing nymphs and chasing centaurs. These creatures would not have been so content to play along had Dionysus not looked so favorably upon the royal party. Before anything embarrassing could happen, the god of ecstasy invited his guests to swim in a lake of wine. The lake had been selected from the finest burgundies and produced the most sluggish aromas. Of the three, Silenus was the worst swimmer. He lagged behind, spluttering and mumbling. But the unsightly one was not so far gone that he couldn't hear the now infamous transaction which took place between Midas and Dionysus that day. What Silenus heard made him realize that soon he would be sycophant not merely to a king, but to the richest king who ever lived. You're as handsome as everyone says, Dionysus called to Midas, but looks as the brunt of an old joke. They have a comical way of making something desirable quite revolting after a time, he warned as he swam ahead in the wine. Had he been able to follow the philosopher's words closely, Midas might have taken umbrage but he was only just about managing a choppy breaststroke. He did, however, detect an uncivil tone in the god's voice. If you weren't so all-powerful, he replied, I would have you thrashed for being smarmy. <laughs> the god laughed. What can I do to make amends? he asked. I know. Perhaps I might confer upon you the power to have anything you desire. What? Anything? Name it and it shall be yours, Dionysus said. Even as an unhappy dog, Anton knew that it won't have taken Midas more than a second to come up with a ruse to get what he wanted more than anything, which was immeasurable wealth. But Anton's experience of the unseen by virtue of being so kaleidoscopic, meant that he had no capacity to concentrate, which is to say, he couldn't fixate on any single whim. All he could really be obsessive about was the agony Matutino's home-mixed paints had triggered in him. It was as if he'd lost something tremendously important, but didn't yet know what it was. The feeling needled him in ways that few dogs would have been able to endure. 
He didn't understand why he should recall riding a horse so far from home, unless there was something in the mountains that a dog absolutely had to have. It occurred to him that at some stage there may have been a shoe with a buckle, but the dog couldn't put this shoe into any context yet. It seemed meaningless. The patterns of these distracted thoughts, such as they were, made him whimper sorrowfully for hours. It was while he languished in the more remote wings of the fortress that the pining animal attracted the attentions of Midas's mother. On hearing its cries, Queen Sibylle appeared, not far from where Anton was lying on the flagstones. As soon as he saw her, he raised his head. The image that confronted him was of an elderly woman wearing a nun's wimple and a long black habit. Although her skin was wrinkled, it was in her accusing smile that Anton recognized the shrouded beauty of Kubilea in the desert. He recalled that on that occasion he'd been able to escape Kubilea's piercing gaze. This time, though, she had her own dog with her. It was standing by her side. It bore a remarkable resemblance to Anton. It had the same dark, shaggy fur and hooded brown eyes. Anton shot up at once and trotted over to say hello. The apparatus the queen had in her hands didn't seem relevant. All Anton wanted to do was sniff the other dog's bottom. By means of long strands of catgut, the apparatus Sibylle controlled was attached to various parts of the other dog's anatomy. As Anton drew nearer, she caused the other dog to proceed back into the dimness of an alcove. It moved daintily through a doorway. On Sibylle's face was a prurient expression, perfectly aligned to the other dog's bouncing gait. She ducked as she went in after it. Anton felt obliged to follow. He boldly entered the rooms where Midas had had his mother imprisoned. It struck him straight away that the furnishings in Sibylle's quarters were in disarray. He wasn't wrong. Upended sofas and chairs, tables on their sides, and curtains draped over the floors had all been cleverly adapted and arranged for the lives of the queen's marionettes. Having adopted all kinds of poses, the puppets stood where they'd been left or dropped. Whether in the surrounding forests or the marketplace or within the great fortress itself, the queen's golden-faced figurines were all caught in the diorama of a fateful day in Gordian. Sister Sibylle, as she was now called, came out from behind a cupboard. She no longer had her puppet of the dog that looked like Anton, but carried with her the workings of two new puppets. One was an effigy of her son. She worked this one with her right hand. The other was of herself, dressed in the same wimple and habit. Sibylle worked this one with her left hand. Attached to the hands of the puppet of herself was the mini apparatus to work the tiny but superbly contrived Anton lookalike the puppet of herself was manipulating. To put this another way, a puppet of Anton was being walked by a puppet of Sibylle, who in turn was being walked by Sister Sibylle herself. The question of who was walking the matar of everything under the sun, as Sibylle sometimes titled herself, 
is one that Anton was not able to conceive of. There was too much going on for such deep reflection. All the other puppets, dispersed around the royal apartments, were solidified in the act of doing something or other. Their faces and hands were painted in guilt. Anton couldn't work out what he was more fascinated by, the puppeteering of the tiny hymn operated by the marionette of Sibylle, or the puppets of three noblemen near an upturned chair, frozen in an act of regicide. Like all the other puppets in the room, their faces and hands were rendered in a sheen of gold. They had their daggers drawn and were poised to assassinate Midas. But the puppet of Midas was with Sibylle on the other side of the room. It was being made to move rapidly between the walls of the fortress. Servants and ladies with golden faces stood in petrified poses, their bodies contorted in the act of running or hiding. Silenus was there too. His likeness was sufficient to make Anton bare his teeth. The puppet of Silenus didn't respond, though. It, too, was frozen. It had its hands in the air, as if moments before it had been waving them. Its golden expression was disfigured by fear. Twisting her face into an expression of shock, Sibylle made her puppet of Midas walk up to this stunned version of Silenus. It was as if Midas had only just realized what he'd done. His only friend in the world had been turned into a lump of gold, and it seemed that nothing could bring him back. Horrified, the puppet of Midas raised its hands to its mouth. There were only three puppets in Sibylle's apartments that still moved. The one of herself and her dog, the one of Midas, and another one of a man with his head between his hands. Sibylle had to set Midas aside in order to be able to work with this one. It was sitting on a cushion. It wore the long black robes and white bands of a lawyer. It was tapping its foot on the floor. Sibylle's withering features turned themselves downwards to form an expression of sadness. She walked the puppet of herself walking her dog up to the lawyer on the cushion. The performance was so well observed that if he still had hands, Anton would have clapped. Sibylle made the tiny puppet of him sniff the moving man's shoes. In order to work Midas into the scene, she discarded the apparatus operating herself and the sniffing dog. She caused Midas to approach the lawyer now. With an expression of false benevolence, she made Midas touch the lawyer's head as if he was conferring a blessing but the lawyer didn't turn to gold. He kept tapping his foot. All the while, his head shook in his hands. As not turning to gold was nothing less than treasonous, Midas flew into a rage. When Anton looked up at Sibylle's face, framed in her wimple, he saw the rage firsthand. It was emulated in her, and yet it came from her. So... Dear mother, the real Midas roared. The real Midas had burst into the queen's apartments and had been observing the scene from the start. I see the rumors are true. The king's eyes were bloodshot. He looked deranged. From the very beginning, he shrieked, we have all been doing nothing but your secret bidding. 
He picked up a chair and threw it at a wall. The chair hit the wall with force, but it didn't smash into smithereens. It had turned to gold mid-flight and clanked to the floor in one piece. Sibylle made the puppet of her son touch the lawyer again, but the lawyer's shoe kept tapping the floor. She shook her head sadly, looking at her son again. Midas pointed at the golden chair he'd made. His voice trembled. You are not the only one who can perform miracles, mother, he said. Sibylle's moment had come at last. She'd been waiting for this moment since the beginning of time. Perhaps not quite the beginning of time. The beginning of time was when there was nothing. Shortly after that, a bird called Nix sat on a golden egg. Nix was the daughter of chaos and darkness. Sibylle had actually been waiting for this moment since Nix's golden egg cracked open, not long after the beginning of time. Eros was the creature inside the egg. Her shell became the sky and was called Uranus. Everything under the sky was called Gaia. In a dastardly feat of reverse engineering, it was Eros who made Uranus and Gaia come together in order to commit all living things to the torments of love. But enough of Anton's myths. Sibylle herself was desperate to be rid of them. She rushed to her son. She stretched out her arms. Midas, she said, you finally consented to visit me. Come, take my hand. Although Anton might have been mesmerized by the enactment of this fated moment, he was still a dog. He knew the time had come to scamper. But he was a faithful dog. In order to keep a memento of these extraordinary and historic scenes, he grabbed the puppet of the lawyer between his jaws. Midas touched his mother and she turned to gold. She knew she would, for Sibylle had been a goddess trapped in living form. It was only by the magic of another god that she could ever be released. The spell cast by Dionysus would do. As soon as Midas touched her, the goddess was gone. All that was left was a golden and radiant statue of herself dressed as a nun. And just as instantly, having stolen the only puppet in the room that could still move, Anton became a fugitive from the law. Argos, heal, the king shouted. His rage spoiled whatever magnificence he might have had left. It seemed to Anton that Midas wanted to turn him into gold as well. The dog leapt through the doorway and raced down the corridor. When he heard Midas chasing, he raced even faster partly because it was fun being chased, but also because, as a four-legged creature, Anton was honor-bound never to let go of the prize he had in his mouth. The king chased his disobedient dog through a goldening fortress. As they went, everything Midas touched shimmered into greater personal wealth. Furniture, horses, weapons, scraps of food on plates, and finally, even the surrounding forest. All of it made the great edifice on the mountain shine in a golden hue. Anton maintained a sensible distance between himself and the man who could have everything riches can buy. All the while, he kept his puppet of a lawyer in his mouth. They chased around golden trees. They waded through streams, turning them all into undulating golden globs. 
Midas expended unnecessary energy, vocalizing his hatred of everything that existed, all of it now focused onto a single miserable little hound. The king began to puff and pant. He leaned against a boulder. It became a golden boulder, which made him sob. This sad display gave Anton time to sniff. Soon he came across the scent of his own urine. The smell enabled him to locate the hole in the passage through which he'd first entered the kingdom of Gordian. <laughs>